So we come to the closing of the section called Practicing Dharma, and this was a um, Dhamma talk that uh, Lumpur was giving to the nuns community at Wat Bob Hong. So the talk is entitled One Day Passes, and it was um, just a final story about Venerable Sariputta and Mahamogalana to close uh, that teaching. At one time, Sariputta and Mogalana were residing on a mountain. Sariputta fell ill with severe pains in his stomach. He felt that he might even die. Mogalana asked him, Have you ever been sick like this before? Sariputta answered, Yes, I have. It's been happening since I was a layperson. What medicine did you take for it? Before, when this happened, my mother would boil green beans with milk and sugar and some other ingredients. After I ate them, the pains would go away. There were just the two of them talking there on the mountain. The deity of that place, uh, 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 the deva that was there, overheard them. Just as evening was coming, he went down to the village to find a lay patron. He grabbed the patron by the neck and dragged his son out too. He was carrying on and making a great fuss. Why was he giving them such a hard time? Are you going to prepare some medicine for Venerable Sariputta? If you don't offer him some medicine, he'll die. Are you going to let Venerable Sariputta die? The patron understood. He gave his word that he would make the medicine. Then the deity vanished, and the man hurried to find some green beans and spent the night preparing them. In the morning, Moggallana went for arms. Sariputta could not go because of the pain in his stomach. The patron presented the green beans, along with some other food. I wish to offer this to the venerable Sariputta. Then he put it into the arms bowl. When Moggallan reached the monastery, he took out his own food and offered the bowl with Sariputta's food to him. Sariputta looked in the bowl and saw the green beans prepared just as he'd described the night before. Everything was exactly as he had told Moggallana. Sariputta was upset. This was not in accord with the rules of a bhikkhu. An inappropriate request had obviously been made. Venerable Moggallana, please spill this food out on the ground. Food that was requested of a patron without invitation is not appropriate and I cannot accept it. He was protecting his vows. When he spoke these words, all the deities heard. Moggallana picked up the arms bowl to pour it out and just as the medicinal food hit the ground, Sariputta's pain and illness disappeared. This is called the medicine of Dharma. It has power and blessing like this. Sariputta was practicing to this extent. Even when the two monks were alone on a mountaintop, the, de the deity heard their conversation. Uh, and even when the deity caused the exact food that he needed to be given to him, Sariputta would not eat it because he was afraid of, violate, of violating his precepts. This was how he guarded his mind. Practice should be like this. Please impress this upon your minds. You will not die! Exclamation mark. Today, after you finish your meal, you need not worry about what you'll get tomorrow. It will come. We don't need to store up a lot. If we practice well, the provisions must come. It is said that whoever doesn't make offerings to those practicing authentically and virtuously will not feel good. They will have headaches. They will want to go to, to pay their respects and make offerings. Such feelings naturally come about in people because of this power. So that's the story of uh, Venerable uh, Sariputta and Venerable Mahamogalana. And uh, uh, I have come across that, uh, that story before, and Lumpur tells it on other occasions. So this Dhamma Osita is the uh, 
the term for the medicine of Dhamma. And Venerable Sariputta very um, assiduously refusing to uh, accept food that might possibly have been, uh, say, uh, uh, someone has been coerced to, to offer that. So that uh, one of our, our rules is that we shouldn't be uh, asking for any kind of um, any kind of particular food or uh, fine foods or you know requesting things from from lay people we rely on whatever we are given without maneuvering or manipulating or requesting um, hinting and so on so venerable Sariputta was being extremely scrupulous and then the power of that good karma of him saying no no even though I'm I'm uncomfortable and unwell I can't possibly accept this this is suspiciously uh, uh, like exactly what I need um, and so that uh, that very gesture of being ready to to um, relinquish it created enough good karma to bring about the ending of his illness. So we do have cupboards filled with medicines. <laughs> we don't have to rely on on dhamma osita, but uh, I feel it's also a a, a a good principle to um, to bear in mind, and that uh, shouldn't be just disregarded as some kind of um, folk tales or, or, or kind of having a superstitious belief. Um, when Ajahn Tate was uh, diagnosed with uh, bone cancer and the doctors felt he was untreatable, then uh, uh, he went into a, a solitary retreat um, to, to work on his illness uh, just uh, with his meditation. And... Uh, and he gives an account of this in his uh, autobiography um, that uh, where the the doctors had, had said you know you're you're not going to recover from this your your life is nearly over and he uh, directed his mind towards uh, the ailment that he had and used his meditation and managed to bring the uh, the bone cancer to an end and lived for quite a number of years uh, after that so the um, the mind can have extraordinary um, effects upon the body sometimes not uh, not always obviously but um, that uh, that can be the case and so yeah Dhamma Osata uh, is the the term for that the medicine of Dhamma so any questions thoughts yes it's not a suitor I've come across there uh, do you know what the reference is uh, it would be from uh, uh, probably one of the commentarial stories. It might be from um, like the Dhammapada commentary, something mm-hmm. of that nature. Uh, I'm not sure. I mean, it's the sort of thing one, one can... Uh, um, it comes from some scriptural source, uh, but I couldn't swear to exactly where. But often stories like this, the Dhammapada commentary is a rich, a rich theme for, for these kind of, uh, these kind of uh, incidents. And um, so that, uh, uh, that that's where I would look to, to track it down. Okay, so that's the end of the chapter called Practicing Dharma. And the next one, chapter four, is called Seeing Dharma. And this talk, uh, the first talk in this group is called Kandanya Knows. It doesn't say to whom Longpore was speaking um, when he gave this talk, but um, uh, that's the title of it. We are practitioners of Dharma. All Dharmas are nature, existing as it is. Nature is exclusively and completely Dharma. Those things are not yet clear to us because we haven't come to know the way to practice, 
so we need to rely on the instructions and training of a qualified teacher. Nature also teaches us things such as trees are born from their causes and grow accordingly. This is nature showing us something, but we're not yet able to see that the trees are teaching us. All the way from their birth to growing, blossoming and giving fruit, we merely see them as supplying fruit for us to eat. We don't see them as something for us to turn inward and reflect upon. We should know that Dharma is the tree teaching us, but we don't realize that yet. When the tree gives fruit, we gather and eat it indifferently without any real investigation or consideration. The sweet and sour tastes of fruit are their nature. These characteristics are Dharma, and the fruits are teaching us something, but we don't understand that. When the leaves of the tree wither and die, they fall. We only see it as leaves falling, and we tread on them or sweep them up without any investigation. We don't realize this is Dharma, teaching something for us to hear. The leaves of the tree fall, and the new buds appear. We see this cycle, but don't really think much about it, so we don't learn anything of significance from it. If we were to turn it inward, we would see that our own birth and death are not so very different from that of trees. This body comes into being as a result of various causes and depends on the four elements for its existence. It grows and comes to fruition of different kinds, just like a tree. And the falling leaves and new buds are no different from the lives of people. Take a look at this. We're constantly growing and conditions are constantly changing. Like the trees, just as trees are, so are we. All humans are born in the beginning, change in the middle, the physical constituents changing into something different from what they were, and pass away in the end. The natural phenomena of trees, vines and shrubs are continuously and unceasingly in a state of flux. And if we turn this inward, we will understand birth, ageing and death within ourselves just as we see them externally. When you understand Dharma from listening to the words of a qualified teacher, it truly pricks your heart. Outer and inner are the same. Outer and inner are the same. Sankara, conditioned phenomena, with or without consciousness occupying them, are the same, not different at all. If we understand this, then seeing the way trees are, we will see the nature of our aggregates, of body, feelings, perceptions, thoughts and consciousness. With this kind of understanding, we are called people who understand Dharma. So that um, uh, this is a very regular, common theme for Lumpochata to point to, especially being in a, being in a forest in a forest monastery and uh, and um, pointing to the the cycles of the the the, the plants and animals that the trees all around that were say uh, reflecting back those uh, those natural cycles and um, how in our ordinary conditioned way we tend to look at. Say fruit coming from a tree—that's uh, something that is a, a quote unquote a gain that we take advantage of, and um, and but uh, don't think about its origins in terms of the you know the flowers and the fruiting process of the tree. And then similarly, when the leaves fall, we just think of it as you know something that needs to be swept up, and we don't really think of that as uh, you know, our own life that the the. Um, Walking on the on the dead leaves or seeing dead leaves on the ground, we don't think of those like the, as if they were human bodies or our own body lying on the ground. You know, but the, but the leaves, the, the dead leaves that have fallen from a tree, are really the the bodies of the dead. You know, <laughs> so just as uh, if they were human bodies, then we would feel differently. But because they're leaves, then we don't have that kind of emotional attachment. Um, 
But Lung Po would always encourage this kind of reflectiveness, like, look, well, you know, you're walking on the bodies of the dead. It's like, uh, because they're leaves, we don't make much of it. We don't think of it as emotionally challenging. If they were human bodies that were all around us, uh, then uh, we would think differently. We would feel differently. So, so look at that. You know, it's to reflect back on uh, the um, attachment that we have to the human condition and how personal and how real we take that to be. Whereas something like a dead leaf on the ground, being well, it's just a leaf. You know, no big thing. And also the, with the, with respect to that that quality of contemplation and that the. Uh, as he said, the natural phenomena of trees, vines, and shrubs are continuously, unceasingly in the state of flux. And if we turn this inward, we will understand birth, aging, and death within ourselves, just as we see them externally. And so, part of that is also that that quality of awareness, that which knows the changes of birth and death, is not tied to that; is not limited by that. That's one of the main reasons for bringing attention to those cycles. That uh, that which is aware of. The, the cycles of birth and death coming into being and, and degenerating, it's not tied to or defined by those those cycles. It, it's aware, it knows those those patterns of nature, but it's not limited or defined by those, so that it's in a way, rather than just being swept along by our uh, uh, kind of habitual judgments or, or taking things for granted, then... Uh, along with recognizing you know, that these bodies, these lives, these minds are uh, subject to the same cycles, but also that in that observing and that knowing of the, those cycles, then it's also supporting that quality of, of uh, an awakened awareness that, that knows those cycles but is not tied to them or limited to them or bound by them. And then... Uh, we will see the nature of our, of our aggregates of body, feelings, perceptions, thoughts, and consciousness. With this kind of understanding, we are called people who understand Dharma. Right? And so that um, becomes sort of moving into this, uh, this say, um, theme for this talk of, of seeing Dharma. Any thoughts, questions? Yes. I have heard of this set of Sankara, so without consciousness. Did I hear right? Um, yeah, well, sankara just means a thing. So, uh, you know, a tree is a sankara, or a rock is a sankara. It's the th- yeah, sankara just means a compounded thing. So this, this table is a sankara. This microphone, this recording device is a sankara. Yeah, it's a very broad term. So in the five khandas, sankara generally means mental formation. But in its broader use of the word, it just means any compounded thing. So a building is a sankara, a, you know, a carpet, a, a, a microphone, a book, they're all sankaras. Just like the English word thing, it's, it covers a lot of ground. So it, it, um, it uh, is used for a great sort of variety of different, um, uh, has a variety of different meanings. So, uh, it, like sung means together. And then kara is is to is from karoti to make, so that which is made together or put together, that which is compounded. So anything which is a, which is compounded or conditioned is a sankara. Yes. Uh, I thought uh, material things are called rupa. So, what's the difference between sankara and rupa? 
Uh, well, sankara is a much broader term. So any 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 conditioned thing, mental, physical, um, uh, then the word sankara can apply to that. Like, so in 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 um, in Thailand, they often um, refer to, to the body as a sankara, that sankaran, you know, that the, and that it's a um, uh, so rupa only refers to material form. So rupa wouldn't refer to an idea uh, or a um, an emotion. Sankara can refer to a body, a carpet, a building, an emotion, a thought, uh, a refined state of consciousness. Any, it's a very very broad term. So, so rupa is always related to the uh, earth, water, fire, and wind, like material form. Almost always, <laughs> as long as it's got a form. Uh, there, there's a, a structure, but and, and usually it's related to material form. Is that, is that clear? <laughs> well, is that, the English word "thing" is a good translation for the word "sankara," and the word "thing" can refer can refer to a huge variety of different qualities, from a material object to a refined mind state. To a memory, an emotion, uh, a thought. Um, so they're all things. And so sankara is like any uh, any aspect of the conditioned world is a comes under the category of, of sankara. It's a co- compounded thing or a conditioned thing. So be sankara anicca. All conditioned things are impermanent. So then our body has. Uh Aspects of sankara and rupa. Yes. Yeah. 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 Okay. So to continue. Being people who understand dharma, we will strive to see dharma everywhere and in all things, to see the characteristics of our five khandas. They are continually in a state of flux, moving, changing, transforming, without any let up. Whether we are standing, sitting, walking or lying down, we employ mindfulness to guard and watch at all times. Seeing external objects is the same as seeing internal phenomena. Seeing internal phenomena is the same as seeing external phenomena, because they are of the same nature. When it's like this, we are hearing the teaching of the Buddha. With this understanding, it is said that the Buddha nature, meaning the one who knows, is awakened. There is knowledge of internal and external phenomena and the ability to explain the facets of Dharma in various ways, according to what we have seen. We're constantly hearing the teachings of the Buddha, whether we're walking, standing, sitting or lying down, and whenever we are seeing forms, hearing sounds, savouring tastes and so on. It's exactly as if the Buddha were teaching us, because the Buddha is just this one who knows, dwelling within our hearts. Knowing and seeing and investigating the Dharma like this, the Buddha is present. It's not that the Buddha entered final nirvana long ago and cannot teach us now. The Buddha nature, which means our own minds, when clear knowledge has arisen, will lead us to investigate and know all dharmas. This knowing of the Dharma is the Buddha himself. So this is a very emphatic statement and a kind of uh, clear expression of Lumpur Cha's way of talking about the, the Buddha refuge and the, the Buddha quality as the awake, aware aspect of the heart. And, and using the, I'm not sure um, what the Thai would have been when uh, Paul has translated uh, this. With this understanding, it is said 
that the Buddha nature, meaning the one who knows, is awakened. I couldn't swear to what the um, the term in Thai uh, that Lumpur Cha has used there, but um, that, uh, uh, to my understanding, the the term Buddha nature, as used in the northern Buddhist world, and the way that Lumpur Cha talks about uh, uh, the one who knows or that quality of uh, of awareness, um, is very very comparable. is is quite equivalent. And it's that's uh, the, really the essential theme of what he's talking about here, and also that um, the uh, the idea of the that uh, you know the Buddha means Gautama Buddha who lived two and a half thousand years ago, um, and that that's not just the way of under, the only way of understanding uh, the word Buddha or the quality of what what Buddha means, and uh, and also when that awareness is established. Then everything teaches us that whether we're sitting, standing, walking, lying down, seeing, hearing, smelling, tasting, touching, thinking, then the Buddha is teaching us rather than oh well, you know, have to wait for the next Buddha to come along, <laughs> Maitreya Buddha. That uh, uh, over and over and over again, Lumpur Cha would emphasize no, the, you know, the the Buddha is exactly this awake, aware quality uh, of the the heart that is, and that's what observes, that's what uh, that's what sees, that's what knows, that what that's what learns. And so that um, uh, this is, this passage uh, highlights that very very um, uh, accurately, I would say. And um, the uh, and uh, he would emphasize that if that quality of uh, awareness is re- is established, then everything will teach us that they. Um, I was quoting that uh, passage from As You Like It from William Shakespeare. Uh, a few days ago, about how um, when the the duke is exiled into the forest, and um, uh, he is reflecting on the fact that um, the uh, and the, the the words of that go, and this our life, exempt from public haunt, finds tongues in trees, uh, uh, books in the running brooks, sermons in stones, and good in everything. So, that the listening to the wind in the trees, and the the running of the streams, and the the water ro- uh, flowing over the rocks, and that uh, these are like ser- sermons in stones. The, the voice of the trees and the um, the books in the running brooks, um, and, and good in everything. So that that uh, the the duke was ha- seemingly having a similar experience to um, what Lumpachar is describing. That if we're really wise, then everything everything will teach us. That we don't have to wait for enlightened beings to come along to explain things. But if we access this awake aware quality of our own jitta then uh, then uh, we see good in everything and that uh, that uh, there are sermons in stones and uh, and the and books in the running brooks and so forth it's also when uh, when lumpur cha is explaining and, and i like to to do here very regularly to talk about that the quality of refuge that this is really the um the heart of vipassana meditation is developing that that Buddha refuge, that awake aware quality of the heart, so that uh, there is what we see and hear and smell and taste and touch. But if the if the the heart is embodying that quality of of uh, awakened awareness, then the uh, there's a knowing of the arising and passing away of, of of form and feeling, perception, sounds and tastes and and sensations. The world comes and goes, but the mind is not limited by that or attached to that or identified with any of the the aspects of the experiential field and so that that is 
a refuge. That's the Buddha refuge insofar as that uh, the awareness is not uh, clouded or confused or, or uh, identified or limited by any of the objects of, of awareness. And so that then by developing uh, the uh, insight and using those reflections on anicca, dukkha, anatta, then that kind of uh, clarification of, uh, of awareness, a disentangling of uh, awareness from, from its objects, then brings a great, uh, great ease, a great freedom, and, and is a place of security. Any thoughts, questions? Don't be shy. Okay, so to continue then. If we establish Buddha in our hearts, having this awareness and sensitivity, then, as we go on investigating, we will see all things as no different from ourselves. Living creatures, plants and animals, poor people and those in difficulty, rich people, dark or light-skinned people, are no different from us, because all of them are of the same characteristics. With this understanding, wherever we stay, we will be content and at ease. The Buddha will be there, constantly instructing and assisting us. Without this understanding, we'll always have the desire to hear teachings, quote-unquote. We'll want to seek out different teachers, one after the next, and we'll always be asking when we can still get another teaching, all the while not yet understanding Dharma. The Buddha said that becoming enlightened to the Dharma is a matter of understanding nature, things as they are. If we don't know nature, when we meet with situations, we're thrown into turmoil and are always in a state of struggle. We are delighted with things and get lost, being fooled by them. We're upset by things and fooled by them. We're deluded in nature, fooled by nature, and are at the mercy of our moods and emotions. Being deluded about nature like this means that we do not understand Dharma. So, the Enlightened One explained about what is natural. This nature is not something mysterious. In nature, things appear, change, and come to an end. It's the same for the material objects created by people. The pots and dishes we use, for example, are also created by causes and conditions, which are the conceptions and intentions of human beings. They're used for a while, they become worn, and finally break and fall apart. That is ordinary for them. Trees, plants, and mountains, as well as animals and humans, are the same coming into existence, changing and deteriorating, and in the end, breaking up and disappearing. So, when the ascetic Anyakandanya listened to the words of the Buddha as the first disciple, the realization he had was nothing very complicated. He understood that whatever comes into existence will naturally undergo change and finally cease to be. That's the nature of things. Previously, Kandanya had not realized this. He'd not considered this fact and seen it clearly. Or perhaps he'd thought about it, but had not contemplated it thoroughly. Thus, he had not let go. He had still clung to the five aggregates. But when he sat before the Buddha and listened to the teachings for the first time with clear mindfulness, the Buddha nature awakened in him, and he was able to receive authentic transmission of one level of Dharma, which was that, all sankhara are uncertain. All things that are born will undergo transformation and finally cease to be. That is what is ordinary and natural for them. 
So this um, uh, functioning according to the laws of nature, uh, Dhamma, the Pali word for that, Dhamma Niyamata, it's good to get familiar. Niyama is a law or a principle, so Dhamma Niyamata is following, uh, functioning according to the laws of nature. And then Dhamma Titata, uh, Titati means to stand or to be established in. So things are formed according to the laws of nature, the, you know, the laws of physics and chemistry. And then they change, they function, they interrelate according to the, the laws uh, in physics, chemistry, biology, the, the, the way that uh, the natural, and psychology, uh, the, na- the way the natural order functions, so that those are also qualities that can be reflected upon, that you know, this is what we experience, all is dhammaniyamata, dhammatitata, it's, fa- it's, it's formed according to the laws of nature, everything. Uh, every uh, every aspect of the material and mental world are formed according to the laws of nature and they function, they change, they interrelate, they interreact with each other according to the laws of nature so that um, uh, it, the more that that is reflected upon and really taken to heart then the, the less the, the element of personal preference or what we're familiar with or what we like or what we dislike that has less of an influence and the more that things are seen of in terms of nature and how they how they work, how they function, okay, well, this is how li- this is how life is. Aha! <laughs> then there's a a, a balancing, a, an easing. In the um, the development of the Brahma Viharas, um, when uh, talking about the uh, the reflection on upeka, equanimity or serenity, then it's a uh, it's a reflection upon action and its results. I'm the owner of my karma, heir to my karma, born of my karma, related to my karma, abide supported by my karma. Whatever karma I shall do, for good or for ill, of that I will be the heir. So that quality of reflecting on cause and effect, this is how nature works. If you've acted in a kind way, then you feel a warm glow in your heart. If you've acted in a selfish or cruel way, then you feel tense and, and uncomfortable. That's the cause, this is the effect. This is how nature works. It's not personal. Uh, if you go out in the night without a jacket on, you'll feel cold. <laughs> if you haven't got a hat, then your head will get cold. You've got a shaved head in particular. Uh, that That's the cause, that's the effect. So this, the, uh, the contemplation of things in terms of, of nature and how nature works, it helps to give a, a non-personal perspective. Then Lumpur gets on to the theme of Anya Kandanya. So uh, Kandanya was uh, one of the, the five uh, companions that had been practicing with uh, the Buddha. And it's said that, uh, as, if I remember the story correctly, that, um, that Kandanya had been um, living in the, the palace. He was a, a, a resident of Kapilawatu and had known uh, the Buddha from uh, many, many years. And when, uh, when the, the Buddha had... Uh, left the household life and become a wanderer, then uh, Kandanya had, had also uh, gone forth from uh, the uh, life in, uh, as a lay person in Kapilawatu and then had joined up with uh, the Buddha and drawn close to him and become uh, his uh, student and, and uh, close associate. So he'd, uh, he was a, like a senior member or the sort of eldest member of that group of five companions uh, of the Buddha. And uh, the... Um, and the name Anya, uh, those uh, uh, who have been looking at the translation of the, um, when we chant the Dhamma Chakra Pawatana Sutta, then uh, it starts off with um, 
with the uh, the Buddha just referring to him as Kundanya. Um, but then when Kundanya hears the teaching and he has this, this uh, uh, experience of understanding and clarification, the word Anya means knowledge or knowing, understanding. And so... Um, uh, uh, the Buddha declares, or oh, Anyasi Watabo Kondanyo. Kandanya understands. Anyasi Watabo Kondanyoti. Kandanya understands. And so then it says the last the last line of the Dhammachaka Sutta says, So from that time on he was known as Anya Kandanya. The kind of not exactly a Pali joke, but uh, <laughs> that's how that's how he got his name, Anya Kandanya, because it was like the Buddha was de- uh, in the declaring in this sort of enthusiastic way. Kandanya understands, he's got it, he's got it. Anya Kandanya, Anyasi Watabo Kandanyo. And so he was always known as Anya Kandanya from that time. So, uh, and that uh, first, in, in the Dhammachaka Sutta, that when he, the Buddha gives a teaching on the Middle Way and the Four Noble Truths, then it's only Kandanya who understands, who gets the, um, the full uh, say weight of the teaching and realizes stream entry. The other four of her five companions, they didn't quite uh, get the full import of the, the teaching at that time. And then later on, when the Buddha gave the teaching on, on not-self, the uh, Anattalakana Sutta, then all five of them became arahants, but Kandanya was sort of ahead of the pack in, in that respect. And um, so he's remembered from that time as the, the, the Buddha's very first monastic uh, disciple and the very first one to understand uh, the, the teaching in a profound way. It's also is there's a there's a touching um, passage uh, that uh, is in the uh, I think it's in the connected discourses about Vangisa. Vangisa was a poet. He was very gifted at creating spontaneous verses, and um, uh, I think it's in the the connected discourses about Vangisa when uh, Kandanya comes back. He's been away for a, a long, long time. And he comes back to to visit the Buddha and pay his respects. And then he says to the Buddha, do you remember me? <laughs> As if the Buddha would forget. The Buddha says, of course I remember you. And uh, and then he, um, Kandanya is kind of uh, overcome with emotion and uh, he uh, uh, sort of takes hold of the Buddha's feet and, and, um, and pays respects to him. But it's also said uh, that one of the reasons why Kandanya uh, spent a lot of time away from the Buddha, went traveling, uh, similar to Venerable Rahula, who was the Buddha's son, was that because of that sort of unique role that he had in the in the sasana, he didn't want to get any mileage out of that. He didn't want to be seen as a special person or didn't want to just sort of stay like, I was the first one, you know. You know. Very different from Channa, the Buddha's charioteer, who did want to be like, I was, I was his charioteer, I was his driver, you know that. But uh, So Kandanya was very, very different than Channa. And uh, he, uh, he and, uh, and Rahula uh, spent a, a large amount of time away from the Buddha and um, didn't t- try to make any, take any advantage or get any kind of, of um, special position in the Sangha on account of their uh, Kandanya being the very first of the Buddha's disciples and then Rahula being the Buddha's son. They were, they were keen not to put themselves in any kind of prominent position. So that then, uh, uh, we're in the again in the Dhammachaka Sutta, as we recite it, then what uh, arises in the mind of Kandanya, Yankinchi Samudaya Dhammang Sabantang Niroda Dhammanti, whatever is of the nature to arise is of the nature to cease. That's the the great insight. So, in terms of a of a concept, or in terms of of a say. Um, 
uh, kind of a, the the idea of of what he understands is not very complicated. Whatever begins ends. What what goes up must come down. You know, a, a four year old could uh, can understand that. So it's not a big stretch conceptually. But the point is, and as Lumpur Cha um, uh, indicates here, that yeah, perhaps he had thought about it, but he hadn't contemplated it thoroughly. Thus, he'd not let go. So if he really, if that really is taken to heart, everything that begins ends. <laughs> if we really let the full implication of that uh, into the heart, and that's really appreciated, then that changes the whole way we relate to our, our emotions, our ideas, our memories, our body, the people around us, the, the, the work that we do, the relationships that we have, and so on and so forth, the, the living world that we're a part of. And everything changes, but it's because we think, well, whatever, we, whatever begins ends. Okay, that makes sense. <laughs> so conceptually, it's not a big stretch, but it's the, the full implications of that. That being the case, then, what does that say about what I, what I think I own, who I think I am, uh, what uh, I uh, tend to rely upon, or look upon my, my, my role in the community, or in society, or in my family, or uh, what I do with my mind, or my, the work that I engage in, and so on and so forth. It's the full implications of that very simple insight so rippling through the, the, the system. That's, that's what uh, makes the difference. And so that's why uh, Kandanya had, uh, had f- uh, say, fully appreciated that, those implications. And so there was the, the change of view, the, the um, change of vision. Anyasi, what about Kandanya? So Kandanya understood, oh, <laughs> everything that arises passes away. And uh, many years ago, Lumpur Sumaita used to play upon that, uh, and he would uh, ask this question, what is it that Buddhas know that unenlightened beings don't know? With the idea sort of leading into it as if, well, Buddhas has this incredible range of knowledge, this extraordinary comprehensive vision and psychic powers and uh, amazing, uh, say, uh, say, detailed and uh, and, uh, uh, vastly... uh, uh, intricate understanding of the nature of life, the universe, and everything, and so he would say, "What is it the Buddhas know that unenlightened beings don't know?" And then, as if it's going to be a big, complicated answer, and then he would re- he would answer his own question by saying, "All that arises passes away, <laughs> and is not self." And so that uh, that I think, oh, that's all. <laughs> so it was the, it was a uh, he would deliberately set people up in that way, and then all that arises passes away. That, that doesn't sound like very much. Or, yeah, so uh, I figured that out a long time ago. But it's it's the full implications rippling through the system. That's the that's the the key difference there. So, any thoughts, questions? Yes. Uh, when you mentioned Chana, um, the monk Chana. Yes. Is it the same monk that get? Um, Punishment the Brahma Danda, yes. Yeah. Is the same one? Yep, same one. So that uh, at the uh, at the time of the Parinibbana, so Chana was so thick-skinned, seemingly, and was so. Uh, if you can look at the look at the scriptures, he was so keen to to take advantage of that special role he had as a as a close companion of the Buddha, that. Um, just as the, the, the Parinibbana is arriving, 
Buddha, it seems like the Buddha thought, okay, if I'm ever going to get through to Chana, then this is a good moment for that. So that just not quite with his last breath, but coming up to the end of his life, so, okay, so impose the Brahma Danda, which means like the divine punishment or the extreme punishment. Danda is like a stick, like a, a kind of a, a, um, a cane to beat somebody with. <laughs> So impose the Brahma Danda on, on uh, Chana so that no one's allowed to speak to him. So, so maybe, maybe I can finally get through to Chana, even if he's been a close disciple for all these decades and still he's carrying around this sort of pompous idea that he's someone special. So that, um, and it worked. You know, Chana said, oh my goodness, the master's passing away. It's close to his last breath. And he, and he uses these these last minutes to scold me. Uh, I, really, <laughs> I really, I got it bad. And finally he gets through. So it was an incredibly skillful move from the Buddha. Like, okay, let's wait till the last minute. So this is really carrying some weight. And finally he get, gets through. The Chana is like so kind of shamed. Like, oh my goodness. He's got just a, a few minutes left to, in, in this life. And he chooses it to, to highlight what an idiot I am. Okay, <laughs> so it was a very deft uh, maneuver by the Buddha to get to get the message through to Chana as a kind of great kindness. So then Chana was like, "Oh yeah, I really am a bit conceited and arrogant, and I really do think of myself as being someone special." So then he was able to change his ways at the at the end. Any other thoughts, questions? The understanding that arose in Kundanya upon hearing the words of the Buddha was different from anything he'd experienced before. He realized the mind as it actually is, so it is said, the Buddha arose within him. Then the Lord Buddha proclaimed that Kundanya had attained the eye of wisdom and seen Dharma. What did it mean that he'd seen the Dharma? He had attained knowledge and vision that all things arise in the beginning, change in the middle, and pass away in the end. All things, quote-unquote, means all phenomena of body and mind, and these characteristics apply to all of them without exception. When this understanding clearly penetrated the heart of Anyakandanya at the moment when he sat before the Buddha, it became the cause that enabled him to remove all clinging to Sankara from his mind. The view that holds the body to be one's own and to be oneself and leads one to believe in a self was clearly seen and uprooted. Once belief in a self was uprooted, the mind of sceptical doubt also came to an end. There was no more bewilderment about phenomena, his knowledge of things having been transformed. As for superstitious attachment to conventions, rites and rituals, his practice had become correct and straight, so there was no more doubt or hesitation, no more groping or fumbling about cause and effect. If the body were to become sick or experience any other changes, he would not have any hazy notions about it. The ending of doubt had removed attachment and clinging. If there is still attachment, we'll still be groping after the meaning of things that happen to the body, and this groping is superstition. But when belief in an attachment to the body as ourselves or our own is, or our own is removed, there is no longer uncertainty or superstitious notions. So, when the Supreme Teacher expanded Dharma, Anyakandanya opened the eye of Dharma. He now saw clearly. His view of things was reversed. 
When this seeing became clear and focused, his clinging was uprooted. When clinging was done away with, the one who knows had truly arisen. Before there had been knowledge, but he had not been able to remove clinging. This meant that he knew the Dharma, but didn't see the Dharma. Or we could say that he saw the Dharma, but had not become one with the Dharma, because he didn't know the actual condition of things. Thus the Supreme Teacher proclaimed, Kandanya knows, Anyasi Vatabo Kandanyo. So this is, um, again, in the Dhammachaka Sutta that we recite very often, um, the, uh, uh, that, uh, those words, Chakung Udapadi, um, uh, Dhamma Chakung Udapadi, so in the, in that, uh, after all the, uh, the, the main body of Udapadis, <laughs> then uh, after that there is this Dhamma Chakung Udapadi, and it's, it's, uh, it's also a play on words that Chaku uh, is a word for the eye, and uh, chakha is a word for a wheel and I think it's connected because of the iris and the eye being like a wheel But uh, so chaku, c-a-k-k-u is the eye so dhamma chakung udapadi the eye of dhamma uh, arose um, is it's, uh, said in relationship to Kandanya uh, at, at that time um, dhamma chakung udapadi yankinchi samudaya dhammang sabantang niroda damanti and then that w- the opening of the Dhamma eye, seeing things in terms of Dhamma, the way that's spelled out is all that is subject to arising is subject to cessation. Um, and uh, as Lumpur Chah puts it, he realized the mind as it actually is. So it is said, the Buddha arose within him. Uh, that uh, Those exact words don't appear in the Dhammachaka Sutta, but um, I would say that, that quality, the, the eye of, uh, of Dhamma arose within him. He attained the eye of wisdom and seen the Dhamma. And so then, uh, the latter part of that, then he goes through the the, th- the first of the three fetters, of the, the ten fetters, the, the three obstacles to stream entry. So, um, the, so Lumpur is kind of spelling that out in, in a, a bit more detail here. Uh, when this understanding clearly penetrated the heart of Anyakandanya at the moment when he sat before the Buddha, became the cause that enabled him to remove all clinging to Sankara from his mind. So this is then, uh, he sort of leads into the, going into the detail of those first three fetters all being broken. The view that holds the body to be one's own and to be oneself and leads one to believe in a self was clearly seen and uprooted. So that's Sakaya Ditti, self-view. Uh, I'm the body, I'm the personality. Being That's a way of describing Sakaya Ditti, self-view. Once belief in a self was uprooted, the mind of skeptical doubt also came to an end. So the second of the of the th- the first three fetters is vichikicca or skeptical doubt. So once a belief in a self was uprooted, the mind of skeptical doubt also came to an end. There was no more bewilderment about phenomena, his knowledge of things having been transformed. And usually the the way that that doubt it's not just any kind of doubt like. Um, uh, I wonder if I should take a nap, or yeah. <laughs> should I have two uh, two apples, or just one apple, or maybe I have an orange. <laughs> it's not the kind of uh, mundane doubts. It's particularly doubt about what is the path and what is not the path. That's specifically what the vichikicca is. Uh, that that doubt comes to an end about knowing what the the path to uh, to liberation is. So, and then the third one. As for superstitious attachment to conventions, rites, and rituals, so that's the third 
of the the three the first three fetters is sila um, pata paramasa, which means the the wrong grasping or the distorted or confused grasping of sila or conventions and and um, say processes or, or um, rituals and social structures. Sila uh, pata paramasa. That's the third of the those first three. Um, and so that then you know Lumpur's spelling out those the letting go of those uh, those three as being also the same as that realization of stream entry that all of those fell away at that same that same moment. When belief and attachment to the body as ourselves or our own is removed, there's no longer uncertainty and superstitious notions. So that then that with particularly with the um, letting go of, of self-view, sakayaditi, then uh, doubt and uh, the attachment to conventions you know, falls away uh, as well. So any thoughts, questions? All doubts are ended? Question mark. <laughs> yes. I wonder the moment uh, inside into the becomes Sudapana or higher, and uh, the, when the mental state, there's any mental state of the connect to the body sensation, there will be a body sensation connected to it. I wonder what kind of body sensation would be when Kandanya knows at the moment. Uh, <laughs> uh, yeah, it's. Uh, I, I'm, I'm not sure. I think probably a, a, a quality of um, rapture and energy would be part of it. And, uh, I think it would, be, it would vary from person to person. Uh, but um, yeah, I think you just have to realize stream entry and find out for yourself. <laughs> Make a note. But uh, because it's also that sense of of, of joyfulness is is there, just like when. Uh, there's a quality. Of, oh, right! I understand. Oh, yeah, that's, there's, there's a that sense of of ease and joyfulness when something is is understood or something is realized or something is completed. But, um, that uh, whether the the physical sensation is something that that is particularly noticeable. Yeah. Again, that would depend on that would change from one person to another. But I suspect there'll be uh, elements of of pity of rapture. Will be part of it. You have to find out for yourself. Okay, so read a little bit more. Normally, we are deluded and confused about nature. For example, our bodies. They are composed of earth, water, fire, and air. That is one aspect of nature, material phenomena that can be seen with the eyes. This form of nature is nourished by food grows and changes, and eventually disappears. Internally, there is the one who is in charge of the body, consciousness or faculty of knowing. When this knowing occurs through the eye, it's called eye consciousness, or the sense of sight. When it occurs through the ear, it's called the sense of hearing. When it occurs through the nose, it's called the sense of smell. And so on, for the tongue, the body, and the mind. There is one knowing but we call it different things when it occurs through different senses. Six types of consciousness are mentioned in the teachings, but it's only a convention to specify when we're knowing at different points of sense contact through the eyes, ears, nose, tongue, body, or the mind. 
In truth, there are not six. It's one faculty of knowing that's capable of awareness at these six points. And this one mind, this one who knows, has the potential to know things as they really are, which is knowing nature. Whenever this one who knows is still obscured, its knowing is only the knowing of delusion. Knowing in wrong ways, having a wrong understanding of things. It's just the same fundamental awareness, nothing other. Knowing and seeing correctly, or knowing and seeing wrongly, are functions of this one faculty of awareness. Thus, when we talk about wrong view and right view, we're not talking about two separate things, two separate minds or places of origin. When delusion is present, it hides the truth and obscures the mind, and our awareness is mistaken. When our awareness is wrong, our view is wrong. Following that, actions will be wrong. Livelihood will be wrong. All will be wrong. And this all begins with wrong understanding. The factors of the path arise in the same place and follow this same progression. Right view also arises from the one who knows, this faculty of awareness. When it's correct, then the incorrect will vanish. When it's right, that which is wrong will vanish. Thus, when the Buddha was developing the perfections, the paramita, as the bodhisattva, performing great austerities and living on minute amounts of food to the point where his body became severely emaciated, some insight was born within him. He realized that all the Buddhas of the past were enlightened through the mind, not through the body. The body by itself doesn't know anything. Feeding it or not feeding it is not the point. Others can even kill this body without harming, harming the mind. So, after he had this change of outlook, after he attained enlightenment and began to teach, he pointed out that the enlightenment of all the Buddhas was attained through cultivation of mind. When he looked deeply within his own mind, he gave up practicing the extremes of sensual indulgence and self-mortification, and he pointed this out clearly in his first teaching. His first sermon cut directly through the misconceptions and mistaken practices of ordinary beings. Being immersed in the pursuit of pleasure, comfort and happiness, in the pride that seeks to elevate and extol oneself, is not the path the one who has gone forth from the world should walk. The state of dissatisfaction and suffering, of negativity, aversion and anger, is self-mortification. It brings about no benefit at all. These two paths are not the way of a seeker of liberation, not the way they should walk. They refer to the extremes of elation and depression, indulgence and suppression. The one who walks the path is our own awareness, which should not follow these extreme reactions of mind. The mind should not be left to follow what it supposes to be good or bad, because that becomes the cause of joy or sorrow. If it becomes happy over something, there is then attachment to what is perceived as good and that is the extreme of indulgence if there is something that is perceived as being bad that is grasped with aversion invested with negative significance this is the mind following the other extreme the two extremes pleasure on one hand pain on the other which the buddha summarized as sensual indulgence and self-mortification these two paths are not the way of a summoner a tranquil being these are the ways of worldly people all worldly beings are constantly in search of happiness and pleasure. They are habituated to the extreme reactions of attraction and aversion to things and are always being bounced back and forth between the two as they undergo ceaseless change and keep on trading places. This is the way of the world. If there is happiness, there will be suffering. 
there is suffering and then there's happiness. And then there's suffering again. These are things that will always be uncertain and unstable. Thus they are the dharma of those who are mired in the world, those who are not at peace. Those who are at peace do not go this way, but they do see and know about these things. They see pleasure and happiness, but not accepting them as real. They don't get attached or stuck in them. They're aware of whatever aversion there may be to things, but they do not take that path either. These are the people who see the path. Those who are tranquil understand the way that is not tranquil or remaining at peace. The way of seeking happiness with its resultant depression and elation over things is recognized as a mistaken path. The wise also experience such phenomena but do not expect to find any ultimate meaning in them. So they let go of such reactions. The ones who are at peace are unshaken by these things, by happiness and suffering. When there is no more meaning seen in things, one naturally lets go of happiness and suffering in accord with their nature. When happiness and suffering are known for what they are, they become invalid phenomena. They have no meaning in the mind of the awakened being. There is mere recognition of them, that happiness or suffering are appearing like hot or cold appearing. It is not that there is no recognition or awareness. So it is said that the Arahant is one far from the mental afflictions. Actually, he or she does not go anywhere far away. She doesn't flee from the afflictions, and the afflictions do not flee from her. It's like a lotus leaf in the water. The lotus leaf exists in the water and lives nourished by the water. The water is in contact with a lotus, but cannot penetrate or submerge it. The afflictions are the water. The mind of the practitioner is the lotus leaf. They contact each other. The lotus doesn't need to avoid the water, but they remain separate. The mind of the yogin is like this. It does not flee or escape to anywhere. When good comes, it's aware. When bad comes, it's aware. When there is happiness or suffering, like or dislike, the mind is aware. It's aware of everything that occurs, but it merely recognizes these states. They cannot penetrate the mind. This means there is no grasping and no attachment to things. I feel this is a very good point about the same awareness that is right view and wrong view. Just like nowadays I need to wear glasses to read. If I don't have my glasses, <laughs> it's wrong view. <laughs> it's very difficult to read the words. It becomes a sort of a grey blur on the page. And then right view, mundane right view. Oh, look, it's all clear. So It's kind of as simple as that. It's the same knowing, but knowing blurriness and knowing sharp edges on the words. It's, it's, uh, so I feel that's a very astute and a helpful way that Lumpur talks about things there. So I'll leave it there for today. Seven o'clock has come round again. So, um, and uh, yeah, this is a long Dhamma talk, so uh, there's much more to come with this one.